all right, why did I have you open to Acts chapter 2 instead of Acts 4 or 5, you know? Uh, we've been progressing through the story, and now we're actually going to take a step backward into Acts 2. I'll tell you why we're going to do that, because this morning's really all about baptism. And it's not just because we have baptisms to celebrate this morning, that's a big reason, but we also are doing this because there are three or four different themes in Acts or different theological concept, concepts in Acts that we want to just pause from the narrative and drill down. And baptism is one of those. We see baptisms all throughout that book of Acts and all throughout the story of the early church. And you start to get this idea, if it was that important to the original church, it needs to be significant and important to us. So we're going to be in the book of Acts today, but we're really going to be talking about baptism. And so where I want to go in the, the shorter message before we have our baptisms this morning is I want to talk about what is baptism and why get baptized. And our starting place is going to be the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So let me summarize it, and then I'm going to jump into the text near the end of Acts chapter 2. So you remember the day of Pentecost was the day that the Holy Spirit came and indwelled the believers, the very first early believers, the first church. There were about 120 of them gathered in a room. The Spirit came, and all kinds of spectacular things started happening. Like there was fire, and there was the sound of a rushing wind, and then they started speaking these languages that were actual known languages, but these individuals didn't know how to speak them until the Spirit gave them supernatural ability and they went out into the streets proclaiming the glories of God in these languages and all the people that gathered around said what is going on how could this be and that gave Peter the opportunity to preach the very first sermon. And most of Acts chapter 2 is Peter's sermon. And I'll summarize the message of his sermon. The message is this Jesus Christ is the king. Like he's the Messiah that we've been praying for for generations. He came but you all killed him. But here's the good news that follows the bad news. The pardon is on the table. The offer of forgiveness, the offer of salvation is for everyone who believes. That's Peter's message. And so now we're going to pick up the text in verse 37. We're going to see the response of the people to the very first time the good news had been proclaimed to them. So let's look at Acts 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they being the crowds, this being Peter's sermon, the message of the gospel, they were pierced to the heart. Let me just say this before we even go on in this verse. Um, it is only the Holy Spirit that can pierce to the heart. No sermon, no preacher, no skill. I mean, Peter was just a fisherman. He was given power by the Spirit. It's the Spirit that's on the move here, piercing, piercing these men and women to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers or brethren, what do we do? What shall we do? Think about this for a minute. This is the first time this question had been asked. The question is this. I just heard the news. What do I do about the news? It's like, how do I go about, what do I do? Like, do I join a church? Do I uh, give a bunch of money? Do I like, uh, uh, I don't know, inflict some kind of physical pain on myself as punishment for missing the fact that Jesus was the Messiah? What do we do? What do we do? And then Peter, again, being led by the Spirit, gives this answer. We're going to read 38 through 41. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, 
as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. By the way, don't you love that, that beautiful tension between the sovereignty of God and, and response of man that Peter's weaving together in his theology? Look at verse 40. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Pause there. You know, we, we think we hear the word perverse and we have a specific context that comes to our mind. That's not what that word means exactly. Perverse just means it's twisted. It's gone the wrong direction. It's heading down the wrong path. It's a wicked, it's an evil generation. And we would look around us and we'd say, it still is. Like there's, there's still a rebellion against God. And what the offer on the table that Peter's saying is you can be saved from this flow of rebellion against God. And the solution here is Christ. And then let's finish the text here at verse 41 is the important verse. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So I want you to see this. It says those who had received his word. What does that mean? Like how do you receive a word? Okay, I know how to receive a gift. How do you receive a word? What, what it means to receive his word, receive the word, simply means they believed it. Like they received it as true. Anytime the good news of Jesus is proclaimed, and this is true for everybody on the planet, you're either going to believe it, receive it, say, yes, I agree with it, that's true, or you're going to not receive it. You're going to say, that's just weird, or I, I don't get that, or I'm not ready yet to surrender control of my life. Thanks, but no thanks. So there's either a receptivity or there's a, 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 a rejection of the word. And in this case, all those who had received his word, i.e. believed, were then baptized. In that day, there were added 3,000 souls. Uh, I want you to see that baptism is a key component of the response of faith. Okay, baptism doesn't save you. We'll talk about that a little bit more in depth, but it's a key component of our response in our faith in Jesus Christ. Um, imagine in Jerusalem, 3,000 people all of a sudden wanting to get baptized at the same time. Uh, some of you have been in Jerusalem. I've been a couple of times. There, there's not a lot of um, water in the city. You know, it's in a desert area. There, there's not a lot of water. And what water there is wouldn't have been deep enough uh, to get baptized in. There are only a couple of places. There were these the two pools. One was the, was the pool of Siloam. One was the pool of Bethesda. Um, you can still go to these places today. And, and you could imagine thousands of people crowding around being baptized. This would have been a witness right? This, the, the people in Jerusalem would have said, what is all this going on? How is it that these people are getting dunked under the water and coming back up and, and these things are being pronounced over them relating to the name of Jesus? Is, and, and they would have given an opportunity for the early Christians to say, let me tell you what this is all about. See, this is Acts 1.8 being lived out now. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem first and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. And so in the book of Acts, you can follow the baptisms and they geographically expand out as the message is being expanded out because everyone who believes is baptized as a sign of their belief. In fact, it's true to say it this way. As far as we can tell, there are no unbaptized believers in the book of Acts. It's just what comes right after your salvation. Like, think about it like a, a gun. The bullet is fired, and then you hear the retort of the gun. It's like salvation, then baptism. Salvation, then baptism. It's just a sign. It's a sign. So we get into this, I, this question of what is baptism, and, and where I want to go is I want to put on the screen for you our definition of baptism that comes from our statement of faith on our website. 
Uh, this is what we believe from studying the scripture about baptism. That baptism is the one-time act of obedience in which the person who's put their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on their behalf is publicly immersed, then raised from water, signifying their identification with Christ and the body of Christ, the church. Now, that's a lot to take in, but listen to this last sentence. It's kind of just a a simple way to package that whole thing. It is the outward sign of the inward reality of personal salvation. What I want you to understand about baptism is it's a sign that points beyond itself to something much more glorious, to something much more powerful, something actually more real than even the sign itself. What is it that it's pointing toward? Personal salvation. Specifically, as the definition had stated it, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on their behalf. So you see, when someone goes down under the water, which we're about to see four different individuals be baptized here in a little while, when they go out down in the water, they're basically saying, I believe that the gospel is true. This water is pointing towards something beyond itself to a greater truth. And not only do I believe that the good news of Jesus is true, I believe it's true for me. I believe it is for my personal salvation that Jesus died and was raised up. And so I'm symbolizing that faith through the act of baptism. Now, you come over here. There's actually, you know, water in the tank. We're ready to roll. Now, it's not heated water. Those of you being baptized, you need to be forewarned, okay? It's a little bit chilly. But when I put my hand in this water and I bring it up, I mean, it's real water, right? You can see it. Let me let 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 you in on a, a secret, okay, if you promise not to tell any of the other churches. This is just tap water. It's not holy water. There's nothing special about it. I mean, if you sprinkle this on somebody, it's not like some magic formula, but man, they've been sprinkled by the holy water, you know. Apologies to Carrie Underwood. There's not something in the water. It's just water, you know. It's the same water you turn on your spigot at home, okay? So it's not the water that saves itself, right? It's what the water points to, right? This is pointing us beyond the actual substance in here to the greater reality. What's the greater reality? Faith in Christ. Christ and his work on our behalf. So another analogy I can use, and, and this, many of you have heard this analogy. If you grew up in a Baptist church, I almost guarantee you've heard this analogy. If you grew up in a Presbyterian church, I guarantee you haven't heard this analogy, okay? That's another story. But, but a baptism is a little bit like a wedding ring. And, and here, here's why it's like a, a wedding ring. A, a wedding ring's just a symbol, okay? It's a symbol of my union with Jody. So when I'm wearing this ring, Everybody knows I'm married, right? I'm united with this other woman. And they may ask, okay, I see you're married. You know, tell me about your marriage. And I'll tell them about Jody. I'll tell them about our three daughters, our family. If I take this wedding ring off because I'm, you know, out working in the garden or what, like I work in the garden a lot. Who am I kidding? But I don't know. Let's, (laughs) I take it off. I'm still married, right? Okay. Even though I don't have the ring on, I'm still married. Just as those of you who are believers in Christ, you put your faith in Christ for your salvation and haven't been baptized, you're still saved. Okay, you don't have to worry. If I die before I'm baptized, am I going to be in heaven? You will, guys. It's not the baptism that saves you. It's what the baptism points to. You are saved by faith alone, right? Faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I put, that, put this ring back on before I lose it. 
All right? When I wear this ring, it's because I want everybody to know I'm identifying with my union with Jesus. And so that's what uh, baptism is all about. Now, I want to dig down into the word baptism because this is actually pretty fascinating. Baptism is literally a Greek word. Okay? It's baptizo is how you would say it in Greek. We, we say baptism. This is one of those words that we transliterated from the Greek into English rather than translated from the Greek into English. So the difference is like uh, Greek agape, we translate that as English love, right? Greek baptism, we just transliterated it. Greek baptizo, English baptism, it's exactly the same word. We just brought it over. And the problem with that is in our English context, baptism has no meaning apart from religion, apart from, you know, faith, apart from church services and Christianity. To the Greek ear, baptizo simply means immersion. Baptizo is a verb that means to go under the water. So they would use that in everyday life, not just in church life. So literally, conversation after dinner time could be, who's going to baptize the dishes tonight? I mean, it sounds funny to our ears, but that's what that means. You got dirty dishes, you need to baptize them under the water to get them clean. Like, that's how they'd use that word. Or you might say, did you hear about that ship that left the port seven days ago? It hit a bad storm and it was baptized. And that, that, that one would not have been funny. Like, I mean, that, but that, that's how it would have been. And guess what? That's not coming back up over, out of the water. The, it was used as, uh, to, to reference ships that sank under the, under the water. It was used for people that sank under the water. Um, if they drowned, they were immersed. They were baptized. Now, the biggest place or the most frequent place you would hear this word used in, in the marketplace was in the dye trading business. And, and so let me explain what that was all about. In fact, I'm going to show you what that was all about. I've got a bowl up here of, of purple dye. Okay, and so I've got these two handkerchiefs or these two pieces of white cloth. And so, you know, back in the, the ancient time, they would, they would weave cloth together. And it was, it was very expensive to actually bring color to the cloth, right? Because they had to extract dyes from plants or animals or different things. So they would get a certain color. And then they would take the cloth and they would... This is literally the word they would use, guys. They would baptize the cloth. So, you know, I picture a, a dye, you know, cloth person saying, all right, has that cloth been baptized? Or what color has that cloth been baptized in? And go baptize that cloth in, in the purple. Now, I chose the purple for a particular reason. Some of you know this. Others of you don't. You could tell how much, uh, how wealthy someone was by what color they wore. So purple was the most expensive color. Now, why was purple expensive? I mean, you can go to any store today, and you can get any shirt you want, any color. You know, it's, you're not going to pay more for a certain color. You know, I can't look out in the room and be like, I can tell what's in your bank account by what color you're wearing. No, I mean, that's silly today. But back then, certain dyes were more expensive because the process of getting that color, of extracting it from the plant or an animal or whatever, was more expensive. And the only way they could get purple, okay, in ancient times, literally, the only way to make the color purple was from these particular sea snails. They'd have to go to the ocean. They'd have to pull them out of the ocean. And then they had this process of extracting purple dye from these poor little sea snails. snails. Now, um, the reason it was so expensive was because it took, not making this figure up, 250,000 snails for one ounce of purple dye. 
You just think about that. Like it's a whole truckload of these snails. It's going to get you one ounce of the dye. And so you would dip the, uh, the, the cloth into this precious, expensive dye, and then you'd pull it out, and it would be the color purple, and, and uh, the shopkeepers uh, could charge exorbitant fees. They had to for them to actually make money because of the expense of going to the ocean and pulling out, I and mean, divers going down, pulling out 250,000 snails. Can you imagine? All right, so... Here's the point of this. You could easily tell the socioeconomic status or the identification of a person by what color they were wearing. And if someone was wearing purple, you identified them instantly with royalty or extreme wealth. Now I'm just going to leave that right there so we can kind of look at it now. Uh, imagine being out on the streets and you see someone coming with a purple robe. You're either going to bow or you're at least going to, I mean, like in reverence, you're going to be like, I think they're royalty. That's why purple is the color of royalty. Even to this day, we associate it with royalty is because of this reason. Now think about this, church. When you are baptized, when you're immersed, you're immersed in something much more precious than the purple dye. And you're baptized not into die, not into sea snails. You're baptized into something much, much greater. Let's take a look at what you're baptized into in Matthew 28. You don't need to turn there. We'll put it on the screen. I, I want to show you this. This is from some of the last words Jesus spoke to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. We'll read verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 28. This is Jesus' command or his commissioning of his disciples. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Here's the key. Immersing them, baptizing them in the name. Not in the color of purple. In the name. What name? Of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How much more precious is that name. You see, when we are baptized, we are baptized, we use that formula to indicate that the identification is with the triune God. You're being identified. You're being associated with the Trinity. You're being baptized into the name singular of the three persons, plural, Father, Son, and Spirit. Just try that on for size. There's a sense of the mystery of the Trinity. You're being invited into that union, identifying yourself by being immersed in the name. That's literally what it says. Immerse them in my name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I imagine these thousands of baptisms and these several pools around Jerusalem and all the Jewish people are like, what, what, what name are you immersing them in? I, I, I know the Father. Uh, who's the Son? And why would you immerse them in the name of the Spirit? And then that gave those early Christians the opportunity to say, let me tell you about the Son, and let me tell you about the Spirit that has just come on us, you see. And so this is how they were being witnesses. And to this day, this is what we are witnesses of when we participate in or even watch a baptism service. Now, 
I want to give you two reasons why you should be baptized. So that's the what of baptism, okay? Identification. It's a symbol. It points to something. What does it point to? The good news of Christ being identified with the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. That's only, that union's only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why should you be baptized? There's two really good reasons. Reason number one, to obey Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but a fundamental part of our creed, our belief system as Christians, is that Jesus is Lord. He's our master. You know what that means? Every time you sing that or say, he is Lord, Jesus is Lord, you're saying, he's my sovereign. What he says goes. Like, I'm his creature, he's my creator. I'm his servant. He's my master. He's my sovereign, guys. And so Jesus, he walked on the earth and did these things and proving his divinity. And his disciples said, you're Lord, you're Lord, you're Lord. And then he told them this, listen, everyone who believes in me needs to be identified with me. And so I think one reason, the first, very first reason to be baptized is because Jesus asked us to. And he's our Lord. You know, I don't want to go too quickly over that. I think there's a lot of significance in why be baptized because Jesus asked us to. Um, we call it an ordinance. That's, that's a, kind of a fancy word. It just means a, a command. You know, it's an ask that Jesus has asked his church to participate in. There are two, as we study scripture, we see two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are two commands that Jesus wants his church to live out. And so we live those out, baptism and the Lord's Supper. As an ordinance, it's, it's part of the, the practice of the church, but it's also part of your growth and sanctification as a believer. Because Jesus said, if you're a follower of mine, then obey my commands. And so the first command you have the opportunity to obey as a new believer in Christ is you're going to follow Jesus into baptism. That's how this is designed to work. It's, it's, it's a first step of faith. Say, so, okay, I now believe, now I'm going to start to obey. My Belief in Christ has saved me. Now my sanctification journey begins with this step of baptism. And so you know, some of you have come to Christ at some point in your life, but you've never taken a conscious step of baptism. You know, maybe you were baptized as an infant, but you consciously, as a decision to follow Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, you've never actually consciously made that step. I'd encourage you to consider doing that. Why not? Why not obey your Savior? It doesn't mean that you're repudiating your upbringing or the church that you came from. I understand there are theological systems that leads them to practice infant baptism. There's theology around that that makes some sense. But as we read scripture, we think the clear pattern in scripture is baptism comes after salvation. Baptism is a choice to identify and to let everyone publicly see your identification. It's a chance to wear the purple consciously. You're putting it on. You know, as a baby, you, you might have come to Christ. You might not have come to Christ. You hadn't, that hadn't been, uh, um, you hadn't made, made that personal step of faith at that point in time. So number one, in obedience to Jesus. Number two, second reason to be baptized, and I'm going to start wrapping, wrapping it up with this, is to symbolize and celebrate your new life in Christ. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 6. This is my favorite passage on baptism. I'm going to read verses 3 to 5 of Romans chapter 6. Paul's writing, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been immersed, baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Some of you will recognize those words. Those are the words that we'll say as people are baptized. Buried with death in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life comes from Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Men and women, this is something that we are to celebrate. Life change. And let me explain what's going on in this little tub over here. Anybody kind of recognize, what, what is this wooden structure? What does it remind you of? What does it look like? It looks like a coffin. It looks... Why would we want to bury why, in a coffin? Why do we want this looking like a coffin? I, maybe it's coincidental, but I, I see the meaning in this. Guys, we're buried with Christ in baptism. You know, some of you parents getting ready to baptize your kids are like, ay, 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 man, I don't want to put my kid in a coffin. Yes, you do. Here's why. Every single one of us were born in rebellion against God. And there is something that must die. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're saying this old life of self-salvation, this old life of rebellion, by the way, you can rebel through being bad and you can rebel through being good, right? You can say, I'm going to be so good that I don't need anyone to help me. I don't need a savior because I'm righteous. That old self-righteous or rebellious creature has to die. It dies when you put your faith in Jesus and his death on your behalf, buried with Christ in baptism, and then if you were left there, you wouldn't come back up. You ever thought about you go under the water because you can't breathe underwater, right? If someone doesn't pull you up or you don't get up on your own, you know, in this case, you're dead as a doornail. So we pull them back up. We don't leave them dead just as Christ was raised up. This is your identity, your union with Jesus Christ, death and resurrection. All this is in the symbolism of this beautiful picture. Why wouldn't you want to symbolize and celebrate the new creation that you are in Jesus Christ? I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been a believer. If you've never actually consciously chosen to identify yourself, the death of the old self the resurrection of the new self. That resurrection doesn't just point to the resurrection to come. It points to the new life that's emerging in you even now. As messy as you might be, you might say, well, my life's not put together enough to be baptized. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Do you not understand the gospel itself? That while you were yet a mess, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. So jump in the water and say, yes, I was dead and now I'm alive. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what baptism is. That's why we should get baptized. Now we're going to celebrate it. So here's how we like to do baptisms at Fellowship. We like to make a big deal of them, okay? Is, is it, um, you know, a, a part of our religious tradition? Yes. But is it actually pointing to life that is true life? Yes. And should we not celebrate that? Should we not get excited about that a little bit? Yes. So we're going to hoop and holler a little bit. And if you, some of you that makes you a little uncomfortable, you know, apologies. But here, here's what we're hooping and hollering about, the work that Christ has done. You know, we're not going to bring up banners and crazy snakes and all that kind of stuff, okay? <laughs> this is the wrong church for that, okay? But we, we do want to celebrate. So, so I'm going to pray in a minute. After I'm done praying, we're going to sing a song. And then that song, we're going to start off by worshiping. We're going to continue to worship in the middle of the song as we watch these four individuals be baptized one at a time. You're going to hear their stories. 
Then we're going to close out the song. Here's what your job is, church. Every time someone goes under the water, I want you to remember that they were dead. And then you see them come back up. And I want you to remember that they're now alive. And then I want you to give credit where credit is due. I want you to clap and cheer. If you don't want to, you don't have to. If you want to get out of your seats, we're going to bring some kids in here to celebrate with us. And I just kind of want us to go bananas because this is, if you think about it, this is the touchdown of the church. So if you're going to celebrate anything, don't let it be Saturday afternoons and Sunday afternoons football as much as it would be baptisms. This is the touchdown of the church. You with me on this? We're going to celebrate this together. Let me pray. Our Father, we love you and um, we give you praise for what we're about to see because it's not just the act of the water, it's what this points to. Every single one of these stories represents life change. And so because of the life change that's actually more real than the water they're going to be dipped in, we give you praise. We give you thanks. And I pray, Father, for these individuals who are going to be baptized. I pray that they would remember this moment and it would mark their obedience to Jesus Christ and that they would realize this is a reminder to me that I was dead and now I'm alive. I was dead in my sins and now I've been raised up. And for all the men and women in the room, may it point us to the resurrection that is to come when we will live permanently and constantly in your presence celebrating the new life that we have. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.